0: We have a workforce that has uh, intelligence, it has one thing above all things, it's got creative ability. It's a thing that we've never developed, it's a thing that all of us, uh, particularly people who've been confined from an early age to a factory life, who have never had the opportunity to develop their own personal thinking and their own creative ability. And we feel that this sort of idea that we have put forward has taken root in Barwick, particularly, where they do realise their own ability and the growing self-confidence of the people once they realise what they can do, that they have created the corporate plan, not the single individual, but they have all been involved in And the companies see this as a great threat the unions themselves see it as a great threat. Parliament sees it as a threat. When people can decide and determine in a logical manner, in a creative manner, not a destructive manner, not a striking manner, not a sitting-in manner, but in fact, a whole range of things have come out of what of people who previously wouldn't have realised that they are this sort of.
1: This Hello, friends and enemies! It's episode 38 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And I'm I'm excited about our episode topic today uh, for this week. We're we're going to be diving into. I'm seeing this as a kind of this episode is a kind of spiritual successor to our Cyber Sin episode. You know, we're we're going to be looking at another example of uh, of a real utopian project from the 1970s this time from the uk uh you know which which provided much in the same way that cybersyn did concrete plans for how to actually do radical technopolitics. we're getting into the lucas plan Right. So just a little background here. Right. Like the labor union at Lucas Aerospace. And we'll we'll go through this history from the very beginning. But, you know, this labor union at Lucas Aerospace, a really militant workers movement, uh, you know, they sought to democratize the means of production at this corporation across its factories uh, by giving workers autonomy over the management of industrial capacity. Now, like Cybersyn, you know, the, as we'll get into this project was in different ways. It wasn't as as violent as a coup, but it might as well have been. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it was smothered in its cradle um, by capitalist, but also as we'll get into not just capitalist, but also other labor unions were threatened by it, political parties, you know, not just the Tories, the Conservative Party, but even the Labor Party in the UK, you know, in this kind of shift at this, this birth point moment of neoliberalism, you know, they could not tolerate the possibility of worker autonomy and democratic control in the economy. But again, Like Cyberson, there's so much to learn from the historical case study of the Lucas Plan and of the organizing of workers at the Lucas Aerospace Corporation. Let's just get into it. Let's start from the very beginning, right? I mean, I'm setting the scene here. It's 1976. Uh, and and workers at Lucas Aerospace, which is a a major manufacturer in the UK, had had a long history of manufacturing. Had something approximating a monopoly. Was getting in, you know, something like three hundred million dollars uh, or three hundred million pounds, rather. Which in nineteen seventies terms is a fuck ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> 300 million pounds of revenue per year. So this is a major fucking manufacturer, a major heart of the industrial capacity for the United Kingdom. But these workers at Lucas Aerospace finally decided uh, enough was enough. They were done making weapons for war uh, and profits for capital. Because importantly, around half of Lucas Aerospace's output supplied military contracts this business area depended upon public funds it, it was you know on the law, the address of government funding and military contracts um, as did you know many of the firm's civilian products right not just their products for the military but a lot of their civilian products also depended on, upon public funds and government contracts. so workers argued, that the state should support of indu- of industry should be better put to developing more socially useful products, and that idea of socially useful production is a, is a, a philosophy of technology of political economy that really motivated. What came to be called the Lucas plan. So, you know, in response to this, the the Lucas Aerospace Combine Shop Steward Committee, a, a very clunky name, not easy to say, <laughs> but there's a history to it that we'll briefly get right. into. But they yeah, it lacks. <laughs> uh, Alaska. Whatever. Uh, but, but they they crafted uh, what they called the alternative corporate plan, or or what has become better known as the Lucas Plan, which proposed innovative alternatives for how to manage manufacturing and what to produce, um, particularly at Lucas Aerospace. Now, before I pass it over to Ed uh, to get us even more into this, I, I want to say up front that this episode and our research for this episode is hugely indebted to the work of Adrian Smith, who's a professor of technology policy at the University of Sussex, um, has been doing for a long time extensive work on the history and politics of the Lucas Plan. So in addition to, you know, our own looking at primary documents, other coverage and analysis, both in the media and academia and civic society. Our history that we're going to kind of plot out of the Lucas plan draws in particular from a report uh, about socially useful production that Smith wrote in 2014. Um, and, he, and he's a great guy too. I, I got a chance to meet Adrian Smith at a workshop at the university of Sheffield a few years ago. Uh, and, and he is just like the most like, sweet, kindest, meekest guy that you could ever meet, never knowing uh, that he's actually this like really radical, very much in, involved in kind of militant labor activism. His scholarship is very much involved in that, but you'd never guess it from actually meeting him. Um, but it was great. That's sort of, how they get you, dude. That's, that's how they get you, yeah. And <laughs> so that's so like great. the
2: FBI says, you know, if they're not, if they seem nice, if they smile, you know, they're a communist, see something, say
1: something. They should have turned to men. <laughs> Instead of turning it in, I uh I shared some pints with him at a pub in Sheffield and we just had a great chat.
2: Yes. <laughs> no, I think yeah, the Lucas plan is uh a really fascinating, also sort of special relationship with the cyber sin, I guess will make it if if the US and the UK have their special imperial relationship. The Lucas Aerospace Shop Stewards combine committee. The formation of it, I think, is pretty interesting because uh, you know. In an attempt, right, to coordinate and strengthen your responses, uh, some of the shop stewards uh, started breaking, like really entrenched and historic uh, divisions of uh, between or among workers of you know the role, the craft, and the proce- the profession. Right? They started you know experimenting and combining some of these across you know the trade unions and industrial sites, and so you know as a result. Pretty early on, because of this experimentation and this willingness to, you know, cross some of these boundaries, uh, the Combine Committee was able to, I think, demonstrate to the workers the significant advantages for themselves, right? But also production, if it was coordinated, you know, and organized in a way where... You know, as one example, right? You could have a you could have a pay dispute, like they did in the in the 70s, in 1972, um, where management locks out uh, the workers from uh, the Burnley factory they had uh, for Lucas Aerospace, which was the largest industrial site. Uh, you know, and you know their workers were basically experienced or suffered a strike from management, right? But through the power of you know the coordinated organization, they were still able to upend that. You know by successfully occupying the factory, right? And thanks to having solitary actions at other industrial sites across the company's 17 factories, they were able to win their claims against the bosses, right? And they're able to, you know, do this sort of coordinated organization, this experimentation, even then in the midst of a relatively unstable period in in the economy of the UK, especially, for labor, you know, there was massive restructuring that was going on and the reallocation of capital that was, you know, part of attacks on manufacturing centers and manufacturing livelihoods and communities that depended on industrial uh, production across the in the 1970s, um, you know, across industrialized countries in the world and in the United Kingdom, right? In the heyday, in the heyday of this sort of neoliberal assault on or you know, capitalist assault on uh, labor right an attempt to renege on you know the compromise of the pact that was ha- that happened after the great depression um you know workers in the uk specifically they faced a a massive wave of terminations in you know, in this massive wave right they're fighting the factory closures they're fighting the cutbacks and the layoffs um, all through strikes and occupations Right. There's sort of the solidarity uh, action. You know, the workers uh, during these strikes right, in the occupations, the primary concern or one of the main concerns I think emerged was, you know, how is the new technology going to be used and what are the consequences of its deployment for employment, for work rates, for skills, especially for, you know, the new computer technologies and the automation technologies. Right. And the realization among the workers that, you know, they were going to need new forms of you know, agency or awareness or collaboration. Uh, and initiatives and structures, you know, all sorts of things to negotiate with management and to negotiate the use of this new technology. And this is like a thing that continually appears in some of the stuff that we talk about, right? Where as soon as you start taking technology for granted, right, there's just like infrastructure of the uh, infrastructure as a feature of the world, right? You're fucked, right? Because it is not that like, you know, you can negotiate its existence and push it out as they did and tried to, right? Um, And their moves are largely to, you know, you know, On one part, you know, there were attempts to counter, right, the investment decisions that were being made by capital, really central to spurring the the restructuring in the industrial sector, the relocations that were going on. Um, But at the same time, state power is also really integral to this, right? This, you know, it was through tax breaks, it was through grants, it was through subsidies to corporations and the enterprises that they were able to you know, rationalize, right, or make sense of the operations and figure out how to invest in new forms of technologies, new productive arrangements. And so, you know, Lucas Aerospace emerges as a result of all this, as, a, you know, from a series of really aggressive mergers and acquisitions in the, in the industry and in the space in the 1960s, representing, you know, of course, decisions by capital, but also because of state intervention in the form of grants, right, from the government's industrial reorganization corporation.
1: Yeah. And I think this is a really important point here as well. And something we hammer home and will constantly hammer home that like innovation quote unquote, you know, doesn't just emerge from nowhere. It's not just like, Mana drops from the heaven or someone like, you know, is out for a hike and they stumble across it. Oh, shit, there's a new technology here. Let me bring this back to the city and see if I can put it to use. Right. Like, no, no, no. Like the emergence of these new computer control technologies, these new forms of automation and the threats that they had against workers, their livelihoods, their autonomy. Like this was all part of really intentional investment decisions by capital and by the state, right? You have we have to understand the the innovation of these technologies as an attack on the labor movement as an attack on workers rights you know but of course like obviously like smuggling it in through these ideas of, of actually we're just rationalizing operations we're just rationalizing the investment in new technologies will will just as it is today uh you know in the past these ideas of rationalization of efficiency of optimization were always used to justify ulterior motives for how to use these technologies. I think some might argue, right, that like this, you know, this really unstable time in the economy where the labor movement is really on its back foot against these assaults by capital and by the state, uh, that this seems like you know maybe not the the right time to shake things up and risk being fired for challenging factory owners right like like the like the factory owners already had itchy trigger fingers you know do you really want to do you really want to press your luck punk you really want to you know make feeling my lucky? day over here <laughs> you feeling lucky and but Are I, you? I think the <laughs> <Punk>. <laughs> I think Lucas the workers at Lucas. They, they weren't feeling lucky. They were feeling energized, right? By the actions. They, they knew what they wanted and they were going out to get it, right? And they were feeling energized by the actions of, of the labor movement as a whole at this time, right? They knew there would never be a perfect opportunity to enact radical democratic change, right? This is something that we can't fall into where we just hope that the next crisis somehow goes our way. Right. That that things will that the tide will turn and will be the boats on the riding the crest of these rising waves rather than them being crashing down upon us. They knew that there, there is no right time. The only right time is now. Right. Like uh, I'm, I'm reminded mm-hmm. of Wendy Lou, who's a friend of the show, uh, past guest. Her Twitter profile is perfect, right? Uh, she says the best time to overthrow capitalism was 20 years ago. The second yeah. best time was 10 years ago. Now it's kind of late, but it'll do. <laughs> and and that's that. I feel like that's exactly the the mantra that that the workers at Lucas Aerospace had in mind. When, when they figured, when they were, you know, coming up with this Lucas plan, mobilizing these kind of militant actions. So, you know, instead of, they recognize that it's always the right time to put into practice these ideas about human-centered design so, and socially useful production. Um, and so as the, the committee, right, this Combine Shop Stewards Committee uh, wrote in what became the Lucas plan, quote, We believe that scientists, engineers, and the workers in those industries have a profound responsibility to challenge the underlying assumptions of large-scale industry and seek to assert their right to use their skill and ability in the interest of the community at large. In saying that, we recognize that this is a fundamental challenge to many of the economic and ideological assumptions of our society. So right there, right in the introduction of the alternative corporate plan for Lucas, they knew what they were doing was something radical, was a fundamental challenge. And that was the whole purpose of it. That was the whole goal.
2: This idea, right, this idea of socially useful production, as we've talked about, you know, this is wrapped up in a lot of a lot of the ethos and I think the ideas um, that we've explored here, right, you need to to be thinking about how to reorganize capitalist political economy, not solely with its, or it won't do for us to simply eradicate it and then try to bring on technical systems into just new arrangements. We need to be thinking, you know, at its base, right? Socially useful production is about supplanting this focus on exchange value for use value, right? And moving production away from maximizing profits towards modes of production, based on serving the common needs, based on fulfilling social purposes, you know, meeting these criteria while also doing so in ways that involve workers, involve communities, involve people actively engaged in or affected by decisions, production decisions, production processes. You know, as a result of this, we aspire to develop their individual ability and the collective ability of everyone to have agency, have autonomy, have decision-making in it and like also develop like the, the the institutions, the culture that's necessary was to sustain that. Right. It's about democratizing the economic realm. It's about subordinating it to needs of society. It's not about, you know, the desires of elites or capital or distributing, you know, power to and wealth, right. To the working class. Right. Um, It's a, it's, it's about like genuinely restructuring the way in which the world operates such that like these systems do wither away and they die and that what comes up in its place is like a, a, a real commitment to production, socially useful
1: production, right? That That's the whole purpose of democratizing the economic realm, right? It's, a, it, it's about subordinating the economy to the needs of society because the the whole myth of the free market right that like the economy the market is just this autonomous force that goes about its own business um and whatever comes out of it was just you know that's just the outputs of this autonomous force that's bullshit as we have explored uh on tmk as we will again and again reiterate that no the economy as it currently exists and as it existed back then is subordinated. It is guided and directed, but it's subordinated to the to the to the needs and desires of of the of of elites, of capital, of the ruling class. The fundamental shift here in the Lucas plan is to say, you know, the, the economy is already planned. As we talked about last week, right? The economy is already planned. We right. need to plan it for us to serve the common need.
2: Right, you know as Dewey would say, right, we would want or John Dewey, right, we'd want industrial democracy. We do not want industrial feudalism, which is what we have now where you have a great many fiefs and private, you know, absolutist, you know, hierarchies that within them are just run like tyrannies, right? Orders flow from top down, you especially in the United States it's just at-will employment. We want to you know, displace that and democratize everything. You know, I think there is this uh, good book on the idea from the 1980s called A Very Nice Work If You Can Get It. Uh, Jathan found in an article on socially useful production uh, by uh, Pan Lim, and it, it defines it as fundamentally called antithetical to the central logics of capitalism and attempts to reintegrate aspects of life, which capitalism has over the centuries, managed to separate and compartmentalize.
1: I mean, that's that idea of alienating right. labor from the right. product, from their own value um, that they produce, right, from the mm-hmm. from the goods and services that, that they create. Uh, and And there's something really radical here about the idea that, no, we can reintegrate all of these aspects of life. Yeah, you know, and I think
2: I think that is why, you know, the Lucas plan is a you know, is an exciting thing in of itself. It's it brings all of that to the table to craft like a new movement for techno politics where it's not simply, you know, in another utopian manifesto, right? But it originates as a concrete proposal for saving jobs, for stopping factory closures, all at the Lucas Aerospace industrial site. And the Lucas plan, right, is I think in that sense, unusual because it's, you know, through careful analysis of the skills of the machinery, uh, the work organization, the economic potential, uh, the workers uh, propose like innovative alternatives, right? To closures in in the manufacturing um, sector and especially within their own company, right? It takes seriously the question of, okay, how do we create an innovative system, you know, that achieves lofty goals like promoting human progress, enhancing social welfare, um, and empowering all people in all places, you know, at the same time, it's meeting the immediate needs, like ensuring workers had safe, guaranteed, uh, well-paying, um, jobs, right. To support their families.
1: I, I think there's a lot to that, right. That you know, and this is something that like, you know, I think about Aaron Beninov's work as well. And like automation in the future of work, uh, you know, go back, check out our episode with Aaron, read his work, um, for sure but but this idea here, right like like automation and these technologies don't have to be used in this way that cause these kind of massive disruptions, these mass, massive unemployment, factory closures, right like Lucas Air, the Lucas plan and the workers at Lucas, uh, you know, they were essentially offered two two choices by capital, right? One is either, uh, you know shut up and take it uh you know just you know, we're we're making plans here we're reorganizing the factories you know some some things have to close uh you know some jobs have to be lost you know some redundancies have to be have to be born uh you know and 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 your only option is to you know, essentially, just shut up and take it, right? Um, I, you know, this is the only way that the factories that the corporation can continue to exist is if we do these closures, if we do these cutbacks, and the the workers at Lucas and you know through the through this alternative corporate plan, the Lucas plan, they were saying no. There there is a there is a third way. There's a socialist third way, right? There's an alternative to. Uh, How we organize the corporation that can actually save a lot of these jobs while also, uh, you know, reorienting the things that our labor is helping to produce and manufacture towards the things that we want to do not not these weapons or military contracts, uh, but towards things that actually enrich people's lives, uh, you know, empower society and workers. One of the things that was really uh, great about the way the Lucas Plan came about was that it, it was based on uh, this this highly participatory process um, where like combine committee there with the shop stewards, right, like they distributed this questionnaire to all the workers on the factory floor. Right, every single worker at Lucas Aerospace, right? They wanted to tap the potential here that was, you know, embedded in in the workers themselves, the knowledge on the on the factory floor through this this questionnaire, this participatory process, right? The Lucas plan was able to develop this extremely detailed report on all aspects of socially useful production as it pertained to. Uh, the Lucas Aerospace Corporation, right? So the questionnaire was designed to, to draw from this extensive knowledge about the actual operations and labor processes on the shop floor. You know, knowledge that it's important to say managers and bosses did not possess, right? They were disconnected and alienated from this knowledge. Uh, and, and thus, they often treated that knowledge as threatening. To their own positions in power you know there, there's a, a a number of great studies um historical studies that have detailed this process of of how management feels threatened by the the knowledge that workers on the shop floor actually have I, i'm i hear i'm thinking in particular around the work by historian David F. Noble in his book, Forces of Production, which is this excellent social history of automation, uh, and particularly factory manu- and manufacturing, industrial automation. Um, and as well, the you know, the very well-known political economist radical, uh, militant labor leader and activist, Harry Braverman, in his book, Labor and Monopoly Capital, right? And here, you know, in both of these, these works, and in all, you know, and, and in all the kind of works surrounding them, really focusing on the ways in which a big part of the decisions, the investment decisions and implementation decisions about Things like automate, uh, you know, automation. Things like tailorism. A big aspect of that was not just this idea of, um, oh, this will rationalize the factory in the sense that it will increase profit and increase efficiency, but also rationalize in the sense that it will take power away from workers on the shop floor who are actually intimately involved with. You know the the labor process, the operations of the factory. It will de-skill the workers by, uh, you know, embodying that that skill and that knowledge in automation technologies, which the managers and which you know a more kind of managerial professional class of engineers have power over these technologies, power that they can't have over the workers themselves. So there's a big aspect here of these technologies not just being used to increase profit, but, but at times decisions being made that went against the profit motive, but instead shifted power and control from the workers to management, to the bosses, to these professional classes. Uh, And and that is also something that the Lucas plan was really trying to fight against. Right. And and so this questionnaire, this, you know, very participatory process through this questionnaire helped facilitate discussion among workers and the committee leaders. Uh, about the equipment, the skills, the organization uh, available at all of these different plants, right? We're talking about like 17 different industrial sites Um, and it led to these kind of reflections uh, and ideas, you know, way beyond the development of, of alternative products and into considerations about things like, you know, the very planning and organization of production, you know, issues deeply related to labor processes and worker training and also i mean things like economic management and accounting right like like they were really trying to look at everything from top to bottom from the shop floor to the boss's office what what how does how does this work and what knowledge do we have you know so again as the committee wrote in the in the lucas plan itself quote Perhaps the most significant feature of the corporate plan is that trade unionists are attempting to transcend the narrow economism which has characterized trade union activity in the past and and instead extend our demands to the extent of questioning the products on which we work and the way in which we work upon them. This questioning of basic assumptions about what should be produced and how it should be produced is one that is likely to grow in momentum. I mean, I'm I'm going to throw it over to Ed, but I, I like this because they're they're asking not only questions about like you know they're not taking for granted that the things that Lucas is manufacturing and the way production is worked has to be the case. They're raising that question of no, that we've talked about before, that is so often taken away from workers, the ability to say no that is not what I want my labor, my time, my energy to be devoted towards. That is not the kind of quote unquote value that I want to be involved in producing.
2: I think that point is really key. The no, we've talked about that social planning and the development of like technology in general, we, we all have little to no say in what sort of technical devices get produced, rolled out in our daily lives. And if it's, It should definitely be the case that we should have some say in it and the workers even more so because they're developing should have a say. You know, one of the things that the Lucas plan did well, right, is, you know, it it include, for example, like really... Extensive de- uh, designs for over 150 alternative products, right, that could be manufactured at the factories. They also had, you know, for, within the designs for these products, uh, a lot of them focused on innovating or producing technologies that were focused on, you know, areas like ecological conservation, right, alternative energy sources, safety systems for transportation systems and medical equipment. I mean, you know, like in addition to plans for producing things like, You know, wind turbines or kidney dialysis machines, right? They constructed a working prototype for a road rail bus that was uh, designed to transfer from rail to road in rural areas uh, as a as an attempt to you know create a cheaper and more integrated rural
1: transport system, right? Um, Socialists love trains. We love our trains, don't we, folks? And, and I love the idea of integrating public transportation like buses with trains, having mm-hmm. this like this really uh, almost like a like a like a James Bond, like amphibian car that can <laughs> yeah. go from the road to becoming a boat. Right. It's like, no, man, we've, we've got a we've got a rail system that can become a bus and then become a train again. It's a fucking <laughs> socialist transformer.
2: This looks like a job for Thomas Prime. <laughs> I would love to see Buttigieg come up with that as a Department of Transportation Secretary, but he won't. You know, all that McKinsey training, and he can't come up with something like this. You know, how useful could it be? But that in of itself is just like a, such a a novel contribution to the transportation system, right? Where you can see what happens when you have people who are actually invested in the decision, and the and who you know are actually. Have to deal with the consequences. Speak up and be like, "Hey, actually, like, can we integrate, the, you know, the transportation systems, or can we design something that allows us to integrate them?" Versus, um, let's figure out a way to make sure that autonomous vehicles, which are never going to come, um, are are safe, right? As Buddha judges you know, was doing today in a, in a press
1: conference. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and doing so in a way that, like, really uh, explicitly tried to extend a handout to the rural areas, right? These areas where people mm-hmm. tend to be disconnected, marginalized, right? They're on the urban fringe and say, no, you know, places where it's maybe not profitable for a corporation, um, to have a logistics or transportation system that meets the needs of people in the rural areas is saying, well, that's not the purpose here, right? The purpose right. is to um, provide transportation systems to provide innovative products that can serve the needs of all people.
2: Right. And I think there's there's such a sharp contrast between like what gets designed when you let the workers or people directly affected by the production decisions decide what to produce versus like, okay, what did the market or, you know, what did what did, what did the general managers decide they needed to produce? Um, military contracts for vehicles, you know, for, for weapons, for jet engines, for, you know, odious and socially harmful tech that made up a huge chunk of Lucas Aerospace's business, right? it's an old, wonderful uh, socialist slogan that goes, uh, we don't want to eat more cake. We want to run the bakery. And I think, you know, that is like really the ethos that's going on here. You know, the Lucas workers um, said, hey, look, uh, listen here, you little shit. Like I know how to make better <laughs> bread than you, <laughs> and I could feed everybody the damn place. So let me do it. I should. We let's, let's let's be the bakers. Let's. How about that? And they they tried, you know. And I think another plank of the plan was, uh, you know, look. Additionally, they had still have to deal with the economic you know, reality, they're, they're meshed in. So they had, you know, pretty in-depth market analyses and economic considerations, right? They had proposals for employee training that would enhance or broaden skills, you know, not the job training programs that we might hear about today from the Democrats where they teach you how to code or something like that.
1: You fill up your skills wallet, you know, and right. <laughs>
2: Right. Instead of like, you know, changing the actual economy. And, um, you know, they also, sh- you know, suggested uh, restructuring work organization into less hierarchical teams. This is also like part of what we talked about earlier, where they were experimenting with roles and, and fashions and, you know, whether or not you could take certain bits of responsibilities or expectations and, and merge them into other capacities. Right. Uh, so they had these less hierarchical teams.
1: And I, I love that, too, because it, it, it comes back to that kind of like, you know, as you're saying, breaking these divisions between the kind of like practical shop floor knowledge and the more theoretical design engineering knowledge, right? Saying these mm-hmm. these do not need to be hierarchies where you've got, you know, workers on the shop floor um, under the thumb of the more theoretical engineers who have gone and you know got all this design knowledge whatever to say no 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 like like those things need to be integrated and there needs to not be hierarchy but instead more of, more crossover between that practical and theoretical knowledge
2: right you know and, and you know and as a result of, I mean this is a pretty expansive system they were proposing right a pretty expansive overhaul. Of, uh, of a darling of uh, the aerospace uh, industry. Um, and so as a result, right, the Lucas plan was massive, right? About six volumes, you know, approximately 200 pages each, you know, really, I think, a showcase of the, the detail, you know, the care, the complexity and analysis on how to totally reorganize the factories and the corporation, right? But they also have a pretty accessible pamphlet-sized summary of the plan, right? And that was circulated more broadly. Now, as we're seeing, you know, the alphabet um, workers union uh, rise up, or as we're starting to see more tech um, organizing uh, open up in uh, 2021, uh, the Lucas plans example is pretty interesting and instructive, right, where you might have a workforce at, say, you know, Lockheed Martin, you know, our friends at Lockheed Martin or at Google, and, you know, they want to rise up, they want to have a worker you know, or threaten a workers revolt or or, you know, rise up and and have some sort of defiant industrial action against something that is at the core of the corporation and stated purpose. You know, you could think of the large language models that uh, uh, were the center of, like, controversy when Google fired Timnit uh, Gebru for uh, publishing that critical research paper. You know, you could think of, like, you know, missile production and Lockheed. But either way, you know, you have workers who want to, uh, you know, rise up. Right. Go a little bit further than organizing the walkouts or the strikes, right? Imagine them crafting like a genuinely divergent business model, you know, that speaks to how and why and, and who the corporation is gonna be run by or for, right? Uh, and, And not like a manifesto, right? Because the Lucas plan, I mean, it may sound like a manifesto, but it is at the end of the day like a very systematic analysis and proposal for an overhaul of a system that would still work, that was still profitable within the confines of capitalist logic, right? That is like the sort of overall we're talking about. Not saying like we should have, like, we should train the phrenologists to be a little bit better, you know, but like, get rid of the <laughs> fucking
1: phrenologists. You know? Yeah. Just to reiterate that point, right? Like, like, like we said at the beginning, I mean, Lucas Aerospace was massive, right? We're talking about like 300 million pounds in revenue uh, per year. Uh, you know, it, it is not. I don't think it's a wrong analogy to say that something like that happening today would be like if people at Lockheed Martin, a militant labor movement, a militant union at Lockheed Martin rose up and said, nah, we are seizing the means of Lockheed Martin, right? Like, like <laughs> we we are we are completely reorienting and reorganizing the very corporation of Lockheed Martin and doing so in a way that would still be profitable. I think we have to like really drive that home, right? Like it was still, it would have still been a profitable corporation.
2: We of course, a poor profit, but like we're not gonna, as a step, right? As a step to, you know, a carrot, a carrot to get them to the guillotine, right? You gotta offer a little (laughs) profit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it uh, it was like, you know, they were trying to be very serious about going to the negotiation table with management, yeah, and you know. saying like look we're we're uh, we're not saying like you know all right we're gonna we're, we're coming in and we're nationalizing this corporation or they're not saying you know mm-hmm. at the end of a gun barrel all right hands up and hand us over the factory <laughs> you know they were saying <laughs> almost in the way that you could imagine like a like a socialist version of like like PwC McK- or KPMG yeah. or Accenture, yeah. right? Like a big consulting yeah. company coming in. It'd be Socialist like, McKinsey. Yeah, Buttigieg. it would have been Socialist <laughs> McKinsey. Yeah, Buttigieg, what's Yeah, up? Bizarro, <laughs> Buttigieg
2: that actually read his father's text on Gramsci closely ends up making his own Socialist uh, McKinsey.
1: <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's essentially what they were trying to do right like like they were trying to in a very serious way come to the table with management and say like you don't have to do all these closures and cutbacks we are the bizarro McKinsey. uh we're going to show you you know not how to to do massive redundancies which is you know like McKinsey's part of their part of their normal arsenal but instead we're going to do something very different and still have a profitable corporation at the end of it. You know, at a a 1978 conference on um, alternatives to unemployment, uh, Mike George, who's from, it's called the Center for Alternative Industrial and Technological Systems, which was this polytechnic research center created by workers from Lucas Aerospace to try to uh, think through these ideas of socially useful production come up with, with with ways of putting it into practice. So, at this conference on alternatives to unemployment, Mike George set out these principles undermining what socially useful production means, right? And and you know, or, and that is to say how to convert the modes of production to achieve different aims. You know, I think it's worth mentioning these four principles, these four core principles. Um, according to George. The first one, you know, the the principle of socially useful production, the first one is to fulfill social needs, products or services which are not exclusive to the rich or any other elite, um, which maintain or promote health, welfare, etc. Right. So, So, again, that Fulfilling social needs and, and taking, you know, not trying to do trickle down economics or trickle down innovation, but starting from the, the largest base, the largest class, the working class, and then building up from there. Right. The, the second principle, right, to, to use technologies which are interactive with human skills, which enhance those skills, which can then be controlled by the worker. This idea of a kind of like human-centered design, right? So antithetical to the ways that these automation technologies were being designed, which was to uh, de-skill workers, to take control out of the hands of the workers. A principle here of socially useful production um, is to instead how can we use technologies that complement workers that empower them? The the third principle here, right? To design for need to stress maintenance, reuse, reconditioning, against high volume obsolescent products. In other words, the anti-apple, <laughs> right? Oh <laughs> uh, yes. Like uh, how can poop. we do things that have the right to repair built into them that valorize the maintainers right you don't like Uh, you
2: don't like uh you don't like you know having your phone mysteriously start to fall apart every two years (laughs) and also getting sued into oblivion if you help your friends fix their phones
1: right? Like, like to have to, to build in these like ticking time bombs into every technology so that you have no choice, but to, to, Oh, coincidentally your phone or your AirPods or your whatever has stopped working after two years. But, uh, we weirdly, Apple has also just released the latest, Damn, the latest wild. version. Man, what a what a great coincidence! That's the, that that is the spontaneous order of the market at work. <laughs> yes, love to see it. Oh yeah,
2: Hayek, Hayek would also love the pricing of it, right? Two thousand dollars for something that probably, I mean, let's be honest, cost him like maybe ten percent. Not even ten percent. I'm being generous if I say ten percent. Five, three, one percent. You know, of uh, two thousand dollars.
1: Yeah, I mean it's you know, and and that is just it's only because of that that purely innovative capacity that Apple is a two trillion dollar company um, with uh, assets and reserves the size of entire countries more than our treasury department. Yeah, <laughs> and and the, the so this fourth principle of socially useful production here, um, it you know really drives it home. It's to to work on products which can be. S- Quote, unquote, sold in mm-hmm. a socialized market. In other words, you know, to design and, and the design and production of things like medical equipment with direct contact with medical staff and patients, right? So, so the idea here of like a socialized market um, is that, you know, you are building things like medical equipment, things like transportation, you're building these technologies that are directly meeting the needs of the people who are going to be using them. It, again, it's the antithesis of, you know, there's that famous Steve Jobs quote where he said, "What well, like the customer doesn't know what they want until we tell them what they want. So it's the complete opposite of that, like authoritarian mode of, uh, of design uh, and, and uh, of product design, which, you know, is foisting on the user, the quote unquote user, the technology rather than directly working with the users and, and, and meeting their needs. Brutalist consumerism, as as Jeremy is telling us, I think that
2: you know all of this in in aggregate or all together, right, is really fascinating to think about, right? Because the Lucas plan's ambitions didn't stop at the one company, right? The workers knew that okay, we can have this great, dazzling, beautiful plan, the most beautiful plan you've ever seen, folks, but <laughs> but it's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful plan. Yeah. It's the best plan I've ever seen. You might even call it a deal. Who knows? Um, <laughs> and um, that alone, right, is not going to convince management and government, right? It's going to have to be coupled with a broader political campaign, right, that exerts pressure and that advocates for what they called the right of all people to socially useful production. And as one of the committee leaders said, right, it was meant to inflame the imaginations of others and demonstrated a very practical and direct way, the creative power of ordinary people. And I think that you know, on that account, you know, those in of themselves are all very important things. We've also talked about each one of these, right? The the, the the dearth of imagination in political projects, especially when technology comes into the picture, but also the fact that because we don't have democratized systems, we don't actually get chances to develop our capacity for anything really, except in narrow ways that are counterproductive to being free. Right. And developing ourselves as human beings. The Lucas plan by giving a chance to do all that wildly successful. That in of itself is a is a victory to show that like you can do this. They may not say yes, they may, they may try to kill it, they may, you know, suffocate it in the cradle, but you can do it. And then you just need to you know, tack on a really intense uh, campaign to uh, provide uh, pressure, right? And at the time, you also saw widespread discussion, right, among uh, the international press, especially about the, you know, the where the shop stewards, they were in the committee, they were forging links with workers that were adopting similar initiatives across the UK, uh, but also in Germany and Scandinavia and Australia and the US. Um, and the Lucas plan ended up being, you know, the, the fertilizer really for the growth of this uh, grassroots innovation movement. Movement, you know, as Smith calls it of initiatives for socially useful production that emerge from the bottom up in shop floors and polytechnics and in local communities.
1: I think this idea of grassroots innovation movement, which is a coinage by Adrian Smith and something his work focuses a lot on, uh, is is really worth reiterating because it is about saying that the ordinary people, quote unquote, ordinary people, industrial and innovative capacity, right? But like, but the thing about capitalism is that it it, it doesn't it doesn't even come close to tapping that well. Um, of of power, of capacity in the ordinary people. Quite the opposite. Its whole goal is to squelch it, right? To suppress the ability and the knowledge and the skills of ordi- quote-unquote ordinary people to actually do things like innovation, technology development, economic investment, production decisions. This threatens this kind of grassroots innovation movement that the Lucas plan really exemplified threatens the position of capital, while at the same time, you know, we have to look at it as empowering the ability of labor. And and I think that is something really worth kind of driving home, right? That, That this bottom up rather than top down, uh, mode of thinking about production. Right.
2: And it was recognized as such at the time, right? You had Marxist rags like the Financial Times, right? Describing <laughs> the Lucas plan as uh, one of the most radical alternative plans ever drawn up by workers for their company, right? You had the, the legend, Tony Benn, the UK mm. industry secretary at the time saying that this is one of the most remarkable exercises that's ever occurred in British industrial history. Mm. Was even nominated for Nobel Peace Prize in 1979,
1: which is a bit wild. I mean, I didn't. that is wild. <laughs> the Nobel Peace Prize has come a long way since then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God,
2: you remember the year where the EU uh, awarded it to itself? <laughs> oh, they're like, yeah, I know. Look, guys, we've been uh, maybe we bombed a, little, a few countries in the Middle East, but have we invaded each other in a hundred mm-hmm. years? Fifty years, I mean,
1: sixty. No. <laughs> All right. That, that that that's that's peace. <laughs> that is peace for Europe. <laughs> the, the Lucas the Lucas plan is the real hope and change platform <laughs> that we need. Well, well, let, me, let me be clear. Uh, <laughs> let me be clear. The
2: uh, Lucas plan. Uh, it's not going to work. Uh, it's uh, it's divisive. Uh, what this country needs is capitalist. Uh, Sublimination of every uh, facet of your life, and the um, the Lucas plan is a distraction. It may be right, but it's um, it's not it, folks. I don't even know what other shit he would say. I've been reading too much of his memoir. His memoir is just every single page. Every single page is him going, "Look, the leftists." They were smart. They were intelligent. They were correct. They were passionate. They were visionary. They were insightful. They were perceptive. I didn't like it.
1: You know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen excerpts. I listened to uh, the latest episode of Antifada was all about. Uh, oh, They talked about know. it. Yeah, they talked about it. It was uh, Jamie and Aaron Thorpe. And and Andre oh, on there, oh. and they were talking about it, and and they like they did like a reading club on it, and and oh my god, dude, it's fucking what an infuriating like text, and it's the first volume of three. You've got you've got two more three? volumes ahead. Yeah, of Yeah, whoa
2: whoa whoa, 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 yeah,
1: bro. What? Yeah, I thought it was gonna be one of two. What? <laughs> two more coming out. Oh my god. <laughs> you know you know your editors at Motherboard Vice are gonna be making you blog about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that first one
2: did Uh, that did that
1: did good. You know, a lot of
2: angry liberals are saying, Oh, well, I've, I, you know, I name searched you and I don't think you've ever said anything about the Trump drone strikes.
1: The Lucas Plan, you know, nominated, didn't win, but nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, I think all of that is just to say that, like, the implications of the Lucas Plan were were widely recognized and discussed at that time, which is pretty wild, right? Like, it wasn't just something that was kind of just, like, ignored or shuffled aside. Like, people had to take it seriously. I think one of the reasons why... Um, especially at this time, you know, in the 70s, that people had to take it seriously was simply by the fact of drafting this alternative blueprint. Uh, You know, the workers at Lucas Aerospace proved beyond a doubt that innovation was not this mysterious force that can only be grasped by some, you know, technocratic high priest, right? They demonstrated that ordinary people, those who are who are castigated as unskilled labor, right, as simple grunts who can only do what they're told, as we see so much in the current discourse now, right around like the $15 minimum wage, you know, people are like, Oh, you 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 want some burger flipper uh, at McDonald's to be making as much as you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a professional, Architect or whatever, I'm only making twenty five dollars an hour, and you want them to be making fifteen dollars an hour? It's you like, should yeah. both
2: be making more. <laughs> I, like, exactly. yeah, bro, you're fucking. Getting We're all underpaid. As well. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're getting fucked as well, right? And, and and so you know, all these people castigated as unskilled labor as simple grunts, right? Like, you know, the Lucas Plan. What it did is it demonstrated that all these people are actually, in fact untapped wells of novel ideas, they possess the skills, already possess the skills needed to organize production for socially useful outcomes. You know, as as the Worker Committee, again, wrote in the Lucas Plan, quote, we have allowed our regard for human talents to be bludgeoned into silence by the mystique of advanced equipment and technology, and so forget that our most precious asset, Is the creative and productive power of our people. This is this is it, right? This is what it is. This isn't the, you know, the neoliberal version of this is the idea of human capital, right? That Yeah. yeah, you know people have capital that they nurture and develop and grow in themselves by taking on, uh, you know, six figures of student loans to get a bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. um, you know, to work jobs that don't require that bachelor's degree. Uh, that, that's human capital at work. The socialist version of it that the Lucas plan really emphasized is that people already possess the skills and the creativity to do this, right? They are just simply not given the opportunities. They are these untapped wells. And and through that, we, as the working class, are excluded from these processes because it upsets the control that capital wields over labor and profit, right? It is not a lack of knowledge, but an act of power, that prevents us from democratizing innovation and distributing its fruits to everybody.
2: You know, to your point about, you know, the connection with minimum wage and like this construction of, Certain types of labor is not being like, you know, skilled. There was this discussion I saw online that was interesting where people were trying to figure out why it is that, you know, fast food workers and retail workers always get like the brunt of the criticism. Like, oh, you want like them to be making and earning the money? And I, it was interesting how like that, those are the type of jobs that most people or that most people who are you know against that sort of you know lifting up of the minimum wage, those are really the only you know jobs don't counter that are minimum wage jobs. But these sorts of jobs are everywhere, as you know people talk about whenever we have these discussions. They form the brunt of everything. I mean, like one of the most important jobs, just like who, you know the people who actually get food and harvest it, right? Harvest your food off of the crops. It's, un- it's incredibly skilled labor to, to handle that because it is you know so lowly paid, and you're and you can either be paid by like how much you actually bring in that you learn and develop techniques to like get as much as possible without sacrificing your body or without sacrificing like you know too much of your you know health and you know still figuring out a balance to maximize how much you're going to earn for the day you know and I think people do not come into contact you know by design I think with a lot of the jobs that are underpaid similar to the way in which like you know we don't you know There's this uh, text I was reading, I forgot the name of it, but it was about carceral systems. And it was uh, the, one of the arguments in it was talking about how, you know, the reason, or one of the reasons for segregation of prisoners is not solely for like safety, but it's also like, you know, just out of sight, out of mind, right? You know, prison conditions are so abhorrent that like, if they were in places that were easily accessible, you know, there would be huge problems. And usually when they are, there's huge efforts taken to prevent people from in any way to perform interacting with it. I mean, like when you have protests in New York City, for example, at MCC, right? Think of how much energy is expended in crushing uh, actions or keeping protesters away or preventing them from doing any sort of solidarity with the prisoners inside. And similarly, right, there's a lot of effort in the society spent on not only convincing people that they're unskilled laborer jobs, but also separating the jobs that if you saw them would be like, Oh fuck, I can't do that. So that they don't raise the question of like, huh, like why is that person not getting paid a livable wage when they're doing this thing, which is clearly hard, clearly skilled, clearly important, uh, that I couldn't do. And I'm, you know, whatever job I have, like I'm the hardest jobs I ever had were jobs that were paid hell of a lot less than I'm doing right now, right? And were more demanding and more grueling and less forgiving. They weren't I don't think they were particularly important, but I one of the hardest jobs I had was like this, uh, this really bare bones, cut and throw canvassing operation, right? <laughs> that um, kind of a minimum wage and then a commission fee, right? How harder I think, and just because of like having the bullshit rich people to give over their money so, <laughs> for the political cause, right? But like you know, stuff like that or stuff like you know any of the you know jobs that we talked about before, right? These are things that in one way or another require skill, clearly. And if you step back and you look at it, you say everything you know, in one way or another requires a skill, but it just doesn't get compensated properly. And I think the Lucas plan's ability to really communicate to people, hey, if you have a role in the production process, you have value, but you also have pro- value because you're just a human being, right? And that yeah. can be developed.
1: Yeah, there, there's a, a, a great um, essay in The Baffler by Lizzie O'Shea called mm-hmm. We Keep You Alive, which is just so good, uh, such a good analysis of so-called unskilled jobs. And in that she she makes the argument, right? That like, you know, these unskilled jobs are atomized by design, right? And as Mm -hmm. a result, this work Um, can be deeply alienating and that's the whole purpose right it's to it's to keep you atomized is to keep you alienated is to keep you beaten down so you don't do things like the lucas workers did right Mm -hmm. like uh form solidarity um form a you know a combine committee that crossed these boundaries of different professions and skills and knowledge and said no we are all in this together we are all one class uh you know and, and, and the use of a lot of these technologies, the, the use, the invention of them, purposely designed to drive that home, right? Like Marx wrote in 1856, and one of my favorite quotes from Marx, which is an evergreen, right? He mm. wrote, quote, all of our invention and progress seems to result in endowing material forces with intellectual life and instultifying human life into a material force. Oh, no, no. It's it, it's the automation. It's the computers. It's the technology. That's what has the real intelligence here. Uh, human beings are the actual tools, right? We're the actual yeah. robots. That is how capital treats us. Um, and that's not an accident, right? That is by design.
2: That is a poisonous ideology that bleeds into everything and how people think and relate to each other. And it's one of the reasons why under the capitalist system, things fucking suck and people are horrible. Or, you know, one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why people are horrible to each other is more so to capitalist system than otherwise. You know, there's this underlying ideology that underwrites everything that says that you are totally disposable. You're a vessel for the real stuff. Capitalism market dynamics for, you know, exchange. And you should realize that and be thankful.
1: Yeah. All of these things we talked about around like planned obsolescence, Uh, You know, the disposability of of these technologies, the the harmful purposes that they're put towards, all of those features, uh, you know, that's how capital treats humans as well, right, as obsolescent, um, as as tools that are meant to be used up and thrown away, um, as instruments that are meant to be uh, directed towards doing things that are not socially useful, but Quite the opposite, very toxic and harmful to the ecology, to to society, to the economy, to you know whatever, right? All and that is how capital treats people, right? As not as human beings with 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 an intellectual life with dignity, um, but rather as just another material force. Building directly on that point, and this is something that makes the Lucas plan and the Lucas workers uh, so ahead of their time as well. Um, is that, you know, they already came up with all these same critiques, you know, 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. while also coming up with an extremely concrete plan for how to combat it. You know, so uh, building on that point, then Mike Cooley, who is uh, an engineer, um, a leader in developing the Lucas plan, uh, eventually fired from Lucas Aerospace, due to his activism. You know, uh, uh, companies nowadays don't do anything like that, right? Like Amazon (laughs) doesn't hire workers who, you know, might be thinking about activism or unions. No, no, speaking
2: up about uh, coronavirus uh, running rampant in their um, delivery facilities, never.
1: Bezos would never dream of doing anything like that and would definitely not have a federal lawsuit and investigation against (laughs) his company for doing that. (laughs) Never. It's parody. He would never do it. (laughs) So Mike Cooley wrote uh, in in his book called Architect or Be: The Human Price of Technology, he wrote that that practical engagement in the material development of these grassroots ideas into product and services. Um, quote demonstrate the capacity for quite ordinary people to question the direction in which technology is going and demonstrate in a practical way some of the alternatives and the processes by which we develop those alternatives as we set out to do and here he's talking about the lucas plan as we set out to do there is a danger that our sense of what is necessary will be silenced by technocratic scientific jargon we should not permit this nor should we be intimidated by the determinism of science and technology into believing that the future is already fixed right there right that that is the whole thesis of tmk uh, wrapped up in in that one passage
0: what i object to is they automatically treat me like an inferior well i am king oh king Eh, very nice and how do you get that eh? by exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society
1: and I, I think that is such a great point to leave off on our history of the Lucas plan and the philosophy underpinning it. This is, you know, this, this is our first part, right? Like we've kind of laid out what the, what the Lucas plan is, the context in which it arises, the philosophy underpinning it of socially useful production. You know, there's still a lot more left to this, to this history and a lot more uh, lessons to glean from it as well. Join us in the premium episode, where we'll get deeper into uh, what actually happened when the workers at Lucas presented this to management, what was the response of the of capital of the state of other labor unions in the UK to this plan. And And again, like what kind of lessons must we draw from this in terms of thinking about alternatives in terms of thinking about real utopias, all of that we'll get into all of that. Um, And so you're you're definitely going to want to stick around, join us in the premium episode, which you can find at patreon.com slash this machine kills to learn more about this immensely important project, um, this immensely important case study, which just holds more and more relevance for today than than ever before. I, I will just reiterate. Uh, Wendy Lou's uh, Twitter bio, right? The best Mm -hmm. time um, to dismantle capitalism was uh, I'll change it. It was uh, 200 years ago. Um, the second best time was 100 years ago. Third, 50 years ago. Ad- so on and so on. But, you know, now we'll do. Now we'll mm. do. And that that is, that is the future. That is the um, alternative history that we are trying to actualize here on TMK. Uh, so join us in the Patreon episode um, later this week. Uh, and until then... We will see y'all then. Later.